Thank you, worship team. You know, they, they say uh, the sign of a good effort in worship is that we are drawn into a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, the gospel, through what is proclaimed and through what we're drawn to speak. And I mean, I, I, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Man, there's not a more appropriate topic to be meditating on in our hearts and our minds as we open up Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 15 and continue our series. Because in reality, to this point, we've been talking about a lot of profound truths about Jesus. We've seen Paul praying through the change that he actively hopes is sanctifying the people of God in Colossae. And we've even seen his purpose for writing that they would be presented mature in Christ and that he's had to pay a cost for that. And yet now he's going to transition into something entirely different. He's going to be talking to us through um, command, through imperative, the truths of our salvation, not our sanctification, but how we are rooted in Christ. And so I think before we even begin today, uh, we should take uh, some time together and pray in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to ask, invite you to, to join me in, in the presentation of the word and in, uh, in our worship now in praying that we can reflect on the people that are going to hear the message of the gospel for the very first time today. And not just in this room, but the people that listen online and are going to listen later on Pray that you would be equipped to be able to speak the truth to them when the Lord gives you the opportunity and pray that they would have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth that we're going to be working through today. I'm going to invite you in a moment to say their names clearly, not necessarily out loud. Maybe you'll say it in your heart. Say the names of the people that are lost and seeking in your life right now today that need to hear these words and let's pray together that God would do a miracle as we unpack the truth of the gospel today. Can we do that together? So I'm going to join you silently in praying for a moment, and then I'll pray for our time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, be magnified in the proclamation of your name. Would you be exalted as we dive into the truths of what you accomplished, not just with your life, Lord, and with your teaching, but with uh, your, your death on the cross for our sake and for your resurrection that affirmed your power to save us. Help the words to be clear, Lord. May they be pleasing to you. And, and equip us, God, Allow us by the power of your spirit to have both the opportunity and the words to speak that the, the gospel would be proclaimed in the hearts of those that are lost. Lord, we pray that you would change hearts and that you would be glorified and magnified in our lives and in the lives of this church and in the lives of this community, Lord. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. 
As I said, the passage today is Colossians chapter 6, verse 16 to 15. Now, I tell you every week it's my favorite passage. It really is one of my favorite passages. So good. So very good. If it's your first time in hearing it, I'm glad you're going to hear it. If it's your millionth time in hearing it, I'm glad you get to hear it again and commit it to memory. Let's read it together. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now I hope you noticed a pattern there. A lot of in hymns, huh? I wonder what that's all about. Today we're going to split the passage into two points. Just two. Just two, you guys. Okay? We're going to work through two points today. I'm going to try and say them slowly, so if you're writing them down, you can get them. They're, they're really, they're just summary statements of how we're really going to break this thing apart. The first is found in verse 6 and 7. And it's because of Jesus, we walk rooted, built up, and established. And so we praise him. Because of Jesus, we walk rooted, built up, and established. And so we praise him. Now, I kind of cheated with that, uh, that point because in reality, it's, it's almost found exactly like that in the first couple of verses, isn't it? It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, this is going to be a really important passage, so it's kind of one of those ones you would probably want to highlight or underline in your Bibles. Throughout the whole rest of the letter, this statement serves as a summary statement that opens up the second half, okay? It's introducing us to the very first command that Paul is giving to the people in Colossae. Now, every time we see, therefore, and ask ourselves what Oh, wow, I really messed that up. Let's try that again. <laughs> Man, it was a joke, too. That's really disappointing. <laughs> Got to say it. Verse 6. All right. It says, therefore. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Every time we see a therefore, we have to ask ourselves what the therefore is there for. <laughs> it's not even worth it. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> Affirmation. 
There's a clear transition from the previous thought, isn't there? That's what the therefore is there for. Paul's laying out his discourse. He's praying for the Colossians. He's desiring that they would understand how big Jesus is. And then he gives them this personal example of how he's been struggling in his life that they would know Jesus more. And then he says in verse uh, 4 of chapter 2, I say all of this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so the therefore is letting us know that here is what it looks like not to be deluded by plausible arguments. Okay, we're going to unpack what that exactly means, how it is that we're going to show good order and firmness in our faith like spiritual uh, warriors lined up for battle. Therefore, it says, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Now, do I need to ask, what is the first command that Paul gives us in Colossians? It's that we walk in him. Isn't that interesting? He says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, or later on he's going to say, as you were taught, make sure you walk in him. Now, we've kind of discussed that previously, what that might mean. To walk refers to our daily conduct, right? It's the the principle to walk in the way of the Lord that is scattered all throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New. But wait, what does that have to do with us walking in him? What does that mean? Well, they had received from Epaphras the truth about Jesus, hadn't they? They were told from Epaphras that he was the Christ, he was the Messiah foretold from the beginning, that he is Jesus, a real historical man in the flesh from a backwater province of Galilee, and that he is the Lord, meaning he is both master and king of kings, but he is also Yahweh. He said, you receive that, you believe it in your heart, and so walk that way. Remain in that faith and cling to it as you go forward, regardless of what plausible arguments might come up that would rattle that faith. However, while it certainly means primarily that we are to walk in the faith of Christ, we also know, based on the principle of Scripture, that he's telling us we need to walk living in union with Christ. We need to make sure that we're maintaining a lifestyle that's patterned after him. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 to 10, he says, And so, from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that is fully pleasing to him. We unpack that, guys. We've talked about how in Christ we are now able to walk in him fully, and we can please God with our conduct now. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. And Jesus himself encouraged us in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. The 1990s, something cool happened. I was old enough to know this. It says uh, there was a grassroots movement called WWJD. Anybody know what that means? Yeah, I got some enthusiastic hands up. What would Jesus do, right? You wear the bracelet, you look at the WWJD, and what do you think? Hey, what would Jesus do in this particular situation? How do I live that out in my life? Now, because I love the seasoned saints in this room, I won't tell you how old I was when I first wore that bracelet. But it's a wonderful concept that kind of has 
past the test of time, that calls us to daily step out into the world and consider the example that we have as we interact with the world and work in the world and love the people of the world and speak the truth to the world and reflect the glory of Christ to the world that desperately needs him. And so we've been given this very first command from Paul, and he says, walk in your faith, but then example that faith in the Lord Jesus. The cool thing is as he continues, he tells us that there are four ways that that's really going to be lived out. The first is that we would be rooted in first, verse 7. It says, we would be rooted and built up in him. I gotta love ancient languages. I know there's some people in here that just roll their eyes into the back of their skulls when I say, hey, let's go talk about the Greek. But the truth is when you do that, when you look at the ancient language, it, it unpacks something for us. It conveys a meaning that stands the test of time that our language cannot translate. So now here when we talk about rooted, we're talking about the, the perfect tense is how he writes this, which means it's intended to suggest a, a once and for all experience. Being permanently rooted in Christ. And so Paul is reminding the Colossians that an internal, an eternal planting took place at the time of our salvation, a rooting that can never be taken away, which enabled the life of Christ to become the source of our spiritual nourishment, our spiritual growth, and the fruit that comes from our lives isn't rooted in Christ, an awesome word to use. Come on! Matthew chapter 13, verse 20 to 21, Jesus used the, in the parable of the sower, he says similar language when he says, as for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away with no root present, Jesus says. The plant withers and dies under the scorching sun. And so Paul is telling us that the Christian doesn't have to worry about that. The Christian is rooted by God in our salvation forever in Christ and enabled now to grow and to yield a harvest. That's a miracle. It's the first thing that he points out when it talks about walking in Christ. The second is this. He says that we are built up in him. This is another fun one. As we walk in Christ, church, we're being presently, even now, built up in Christ. We are becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. But how, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Acts chapter 20, verse 32 says that the word of God plays a vital role in this. He says, uh, this is Luke writing in regards to words that Paul spoke. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. So the word does this as we study it, as we meditate on it, as we learn it. But we also know that it's through the community of believers, right? In, in this church and in the church as a whole where we are being built up as a church, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is in the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint that which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so to walk in Christ is to be rooted in him, to be built up in him, but Paul tells us it's also to be established in the faith, according to verse 7. 
God roots us in Christ. He builds us up in the faith through his word and through his people. And as that occurs, Christian, as those things are happening, God is doing this work in us of establishing. That also means strengthening us in the faith. God provides a firm foundation. He doesn't abandon us. He provides a firm foundation found only in our faith from which we continue walking every day as life and persecution happens. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 describes this work of God. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Now notice, this is a process that we are contributing to, but that God is ultimately the one that is doing this in and through us as he roots us, as he builds us up, and ultimately as he establishes us. But he mentions one more thing, doesn't he, Paul? In verse 7, he says, he draws us to be abounding in thanksgiving. Now, this one really is fun. I know I said that like three times already, but listen, hear me out. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, it tells us that through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that gives thanks to or acknowledges his name. Being rooted and built up and established in the faith, we are enabled by God to participate in the natural response. The natural response of anyone who realizes the magnitude of what God has done for us. We can be abounding in thanksgiving. We can be in the continual habit of praising God for what he has done regardless of the circumstances that we face in this life. It's a full circle. This is a really neat concept to think that God starts something in the very beginning as he roots us. He is doing something continually to build us up. He's establishing us in that process. And then full circle, he brings us back to praise him. Praise and thanksgiving completes a circle in which the blessings that flow to us from God return to him in the form of our adoration. And so rooted and built up and established and praising God. That's what it means to walk in Christ by faith and in deed. Let me ask you, church, does this describe your general disposition today? As you're taking a mental inventory, a spiritual inventory of where you are in your life, as you're facing life decisions and you're reacting to pain and to suffering and to heartache and to trial, you're seeking clarity for direction in your life right now, you're trying to figure out what God's purpose for your life is, is your default as a Christian to consider your faith in Christ and the manner of his life as your first and primary and supreme determination in taking that next step forward. And ask yourself today, are you being fueled by a praise-inducing knowledge of Jesus? This text demands that we ask ourselves, who is Jesus to us? Has that question been answered in our minds and in our hearts as we are taking steps today? Because the answer is going to help us determine if we are truly walking in him. So that's the first point. See? Not so bad. The second is this. It's found in verse 18 to 15, okay? Verse 18 to 15, the remainder of our passage today, and this is the point. You were freed... To be free, not to be captivated. 
You were freed to be free, not to be captivated. Now, I know that sounds like a country music song, but it comes from the text. You look at verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, as we entered into this study six weeks ago, one of the key themes that we mentioned all the way back then was that obstacles to Christian maturity existed in the ancient world, and they still exist today. And here we are, all the way in chapter 2, and, and Paul is following up his command to walk in Christ with a primary example of what it looks like not to follow Christ. And surprise, surprise, look what it is. He starts with obstacles. Obstacles that are likely in the church of Colossae and that likely exist still today. And so let's try to understand what's happening in the church of Colossae and then let's observe what Paul says is how we are supposed to respond. Paul says, see to it. That's another command, second command. See to it, ensure that no one takes you captive. Now that's another interesting word, you guys, captive. It means to kidnap or to, to carry off something or someone as booty or the spoils of war. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul used a very similar word um, to, to warn Timothy of men who would creep into the households and capture or captivate weak or vulnerable women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Jesus similarly warned the church in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Um, he said to his followers, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. The biblical principle is clear. It's understandable, right? Christians should always be on guard. We should always be looking outward. And I think we do this well. We're always looking outward, right? Who out there is the, is the wolf? Surely it's not me. Surely it's not in my heart. However, what is fascinating about our passage today is that Paul tells Colossians it's just as important that they themselves not become captivated or captured or stolen away by these voices. Don't just be on the lookout for another. Guard your own heart. Put those earmuffs on your own ears. Look away yourselves. And so Paul's providing a general wisdom and a command. He's saying, be careful what you listen to. Be careful what's compelling you. Be careful what captivates your hearts and draws out your devotions. Be careful what's consuming your time. Be careful what's shaping the reality around you and drawing you to worship things that are ultimately not worthy of your worship. And I know, as you're listening to that right now, there's something that goes on in our hearts where we start connecting some dots in our lives, some things that we might be ingesting even today that we find captivating right now. Maybe you're hearing right now, be careful what you watch. TV, Netflix, YouTube, Disney Plus, million and a half subscriptions that are making you pay twice as much as you did for cable. Be careful who you follow on Facebook and Twitter. Don't even go to TikTok and Snapchat. 
Be careful who you're dialing on the radio. Be careful of the voices that are popping out on that podcast you've been listening to on the way to work. Be careful of the, the Christianese being used in rhetoric and tempting you to confuse your cultural norms and your political preferences with what the Bible actually says. Paul is asking us to consider today who are the voices that are creeping into our homes? Who are the influences that are constantly ringing in my ears? Who am I giving my eyes and my ears and my hearts over to with my affection and with my wealth and with my devotion? He's asking us to consider today, ultimately, who is it that is captivating our hearts away from Jesus? Let's talk about how insane that is. Thankfully, there are clues to who had been doing this so we can learn a little bit about them. As to who these false prophets were, it says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, and according to the elemental spirits or principles of this world. Now let's break that into three parts, okay? Philosophy, human tradition, elemental spirits or principles. The first is philosophy. Um, Philosophy refers literally to the love of worldly wisdom. And so what that could mean is it could mean the Greek philosophers and the Jewish philosophers of that day, the same philosophers that we listen to today, but it isn't necessarily what Paul is talking about. See, we have to pair it with the other word that he uses. He says philosophy and empty deceit. He chooses to do that intentionally. It means that Paul is likely referring to all the teachings and the teachers that are devoid of God's truth and that are empty and deceitful as a result. I'm going to say that again. It's referring to the teachings and teachers that are devoid of God's truth and that are all empty and deceitful as a result. Human traditions uh, likely means the, the theories about the world and how it ought to operate, but see specifically that they lack deity, that they are not godly, they're human. They might even be perverting godly tradition, and we're going to see examples of that next week as we get into our next passage. And the final uh, element that he uses here, he says, the elemental spirits of the world. These two words are actually one in Greek, and they mean elements. Okay, so there's some guesswork that goes into translation here. They're doing the best they can. And so in reality, what we know is that it could mean human rulers or authorities. It could mean demonic forces. It could literally mean principles or the the structures of how we understand the elements of the world, which include natural and supernatural forces. Paul's going to talk about new moons and festivals and the worship of angels. And so some people think this is what he's referring to. But I say all this not to confuse you, not to offer you lots of options, just to help you understand that it really doesn't matter exactly what Paul is talking about when he says philosophy and human traditions and elements, because they're all striking a very similar chord, aren't they? All of them are shown to be foolishness before And after in this passage, Paul unpacks it throughout this letters. He speaks to it throughout Scripture, and the whole of Scripture testifies to that fact. And so Paul is saying, you want wisdom instead of Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 20, will tell you that where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since... 
in the wisdom of God. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And again, in verse 30, he says, because of God, you all are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says, you want traditions? You want elements? Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For by Christ all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ himself is declared to be the head of all rule and authority in earth, or on earth in verse 10. And not only that, but on the cross... On the cross in Colossians verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, it says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put those powers to shame by triumphing over them in him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, Paul tells us that human precepts and teachings, these traditions and elements, the wisdom of this world, have indeed an appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Our flesh is killing us, and these things will not save us. So empty philosophy and human traditions and elemental beings and principles and powers and authorities, Paul summarizes that all of these, uh, all of these are captivated voices that are not according to Christ. They're not. And so if we desire to know how to uh, identify captivating voices and plausible arguments in the church today, all we have to do is look around us and we have to see who's speaking in a way that contradicts the teachings of Christ. Who's denying the divinity of Jesus? Who is doubtful of his historical humanity? Who's marginalizing and misrepresenting his values and his character? And who is slandering the trustworthiness of his word? Church, be it philosophers or magicians, be it politician or preacher or teacher, friend or foe, angel or demon, this text today tells us that it is our responsibility to ensure that if any voice is seeking to interject truth into our life, and it is not grounded in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, we are to reject that voice outright. I encourage you to go to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 9 for an entirely different type of letter. And Paul expounds upon that a little bit more. You know, if we desire to be built up in Christ, established in the faith, and affirming that we are rooted, Paul makes it clear that the first step is that we have to reject the false gospel and these voices that are attempting to speak into our lives. Would you do that today? As you're, if you have been given eyes to see and ears to hear the things that are idols within your own heart, would you, would you get rid of them today? Paul wants us to ensure that we do. And we know that because Paul launches into an embarrassment of riches. That's the only way I can describe it. It's an embarrassment of riches that are intended to convince us that Jesus is infinitely more captivating than anything that we are wrestling with right now. I want you to hear me say that. 
because this is where we get into the indicative, the reason why we obey commands. There are all these things that have been said and how we have to walk in Christ. We need to be rooted and we need to be built up and we need to be established and we need to be giving praises. And yet the, the, the catalyst for those things is the work that God has already done. And in being captivated by that, our hearts and affections are drawn to what is true. This is what he says in the passage as a floodgate opens up in Paul's heart and he, he pops out this designed section in which we, we are designed to hit our knees in awe of the work of God that he has done in our lives and will do in our lives today if we do not know him. This is what he says in verse 9. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul says, why would we desire the emptiness of deceitful prophecy? He says that in him, in Christ, we have a savior who is God. And the fullness of God displayed in the glories of the heavens is manifest in the body and the person of Jesus Christ who is the creator God and the king. He's filled us with his spirit. And so that in him, no threat of the powers of this world can stand against us. In every way, we belong to him, and he is the one who rules and reigns as king of king and lord of lords over all the voices seeking to corrupt the truth. What does the emptiness of philosophy and human tradition and the elements of this world offer in comparison to that? Paul says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, I, I know some of you dread this verse. It's such a good one. Circumcision was the Old Testament sign of belonging to the people of God. It was given to Abraham as a covenant to God's people, that they, the, the people that God forged by his hand, that they belonged to him. But see, when he gave them that, he told them progressively that circumcision needed something more. It wasn't just the circumcision of the hands that was required. They still needed a circumcision greater than anything done by human hands. They needed the circumcision of the heart to be made right with the holy God. Church, God says, or excuse me, Paul says, God says through Paul, do you realize that you were sealed in Christ with a circumcision not done with human hands, promised from the very beginning and fulfilled in him that we have received and will receive in full the promises that God has been making since the beginning. Paul says that in him, in Christ, we have had our body of flesh. Listen, if you don't know what that means, let me tell you. It's the sinful, fallen human nature that has dominated us until he rescued us. In him, that body of flesh has been put off, put away. In him, by faith, in the powerful working of God, 
We experience a baptism that represents in going under the water and coming up out of the water our union with Christ, whereby his burial and his death count is ours, whereby our resurrection has already happened in his. We have been delivered from death and transferred to his kingdom according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. And by our Lord's own mouth, we're told that those who believe his words will have eternal life. There will be, there will come, not come a judgment according to John chapter 5, verse 24. And we know that those who profess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead will be saved according to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Church, we are united. We are buried we are raised with Christ. Why would we choose this world? And all of these arguments being presented. All of these arguments being presented. Are fulfilled and articulated and completed in a, a coup de grace, a death blow to captivating voices. Paul says, do you remember what Jesus did for you? Do you know what was needed for all of these blessings that he just spoke to be accomplished? In verse 13, he says, do you remember you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Our condition prior to Christ's work on the cross was death, church. We were born dead. We were walking dead. When, Je when God told Adam in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, if you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And on that day, he was telling Adam, your, you and all of your offspring and all of humanity will experience spiritual death and physical death and eternal separation from God, eternal death. And church, that reality has played out before our very eyes over the course of millennia. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, this is how Paul articulates it. He says, you were dead in your trespasses. You were following the course of this world. You were following after the devil. You lived in the passions of your flesh. You carried out the desires of your body. You were children of wrath. You were alienated from the life of God, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. You were hardened in heart, according to the same verse. You were spiritually blind to the truth, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And you were unable to understand the things of God. Church, you were unable to believe, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And ultimately, Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, describes that we were hostile to God. No life present. No redeemable quality. Nothing deserving forgiveness Every sin weighing us down and affirming our right to an eternal destiny in hell that was inevitable. And church, we know that the voices of this world only affirm this because they're telling us that it's not true, don't they? They're saying, forget that. You're good. Be the best you. 
You know, you're perfect the way you are. Rules are oppressive. That sin that you hate that's eating up, eating you up inside and is hurting yourself and is hurting the people around you, you were born that way. In fact, the people around you should accept you that way. That's your truth. So go ahead and try harder and do better and work your way there and you shake your fist at God if he tells you otherwise. And our God, our Jesus, he looks out into that insanity on a world that rejected and despised him. And all he sees are sheep without a shepherd. And he weeps at the effect of death and sin on our lives. And he submits himself to the will of his father to save those people to save those sinners, church, to save these sinners. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. And so those who were dead, God made alive, born again. John chapter 3, verse 3 to 8. Those who were blinded to the truth, God suddenly made them see. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Those who were hardened in their hearts, God gave them new hearts. Prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 to 27, and manifest in the work of God in our lives. And those who are unable to understand and believe, God gave faith. And the truth of our passage today is that it causes us to ask, what is the cost? What did it take to accomplish that act, church? It says in verse 14, he did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. Y'all need to memorize that verse. It needs to be part of your vocabulary, the DNA of who you are as a believer. And if you don't understand what it means, I'm going to explain it to you right now so that you can carry it out into the world and wear it as a banner of the God that you serve, that loves you, and that has given everything for you. A record of debt refers to the handwritten certificate of debt by which a debtor acknowledges his indebtedness. That is so cold. (laughs) Here's what it is. In the ancient world, it would be what's written above your head. The thing that you did wrong that would condemn you to death. If you stole, it would say thief. If you killed, it would say murderer. If you rebelled, it would call you a traitor. On and on and on. Anything held against you Anything that would condemn you to die, that was your trespass of requirement. That was your record of debt. The Bible tells us that we have collected quite a debt, that we are collecting and will collect a multitude of trespasses, instances where we have violated God's written law, church instances in which we have violated God's moral law that is written on our hearts, that voice within us that tells us that what we know is wrong, we will do instead the thing that we know is wrong. 
And according to a righteous God, we deserved that those things would be hung around our neck and ultimately we would be condemned, that they would be hung above our cross as we hung for the sins that we have committed against ourselves, against each other, against our world, and against our God. And the Bible tells us that when the Jews and the Romans who mocked Jesus uh, went up to his cross, they would have seen a trespass of requirement. They would have seen a record of debt. Do you know what it said? It said he died because he was the king of the Jews. But what is it, church, after reading this text and knowing the actions of God on your behalf that I see when I look up at that cross, that I see when I look up and see my Lord and my God dying. I see my sin, church. I see my lies. I see my lust. I see my anger. I see my pride. I see my vanity. I see all the times I cursed my parents in the stubbornness of my youth. I see every time I failed to do what God clearly told me, honored him and taking care of my family and remaining pure and following what he says is good and deciding to forge my own destiny. I see my sin nailed to the cross with Christ so that when he died, even before I was born, my sin died with him so that by faith in him, my sin might be exchanged for the holiness of the one who created me. Friends, is there anything more captivating than that? As we think through the course of our, of our lives and all of the wisdom that this world presents, the wisdom and the human traditions and the principles is anything more captivating to our heart. If there's a question in your heart today about your eternal destiny, I would ask you to consider who is it that you belong to? As you consider the debt that you have incurred and the great length to which God has gone to reconcile you to him so that by his grace, through faith in Jesus, you might be saved. Who do you belong to? Who is it that you are placing your trust in? Who is it that is most captivating to you in your life today, church? Who are you rooted in? If you do not have that answer in your head, if that question remains unanswered, then I implore you, along with all of the saints in this room, that you would confess today that Jesus is Lord Answer the prompting of God himself and place your faith and your trust in the only source of truth and the only one that is worthy of our affections. The Bible tells us not to delay. Believers in this room, can I ask you, are you being built up? Can you consider today if you have been established in your faith? And if the, the general disposition of your heart is to raise your praises and thanksgiving out loud because you know that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus your Lord.
Are you captivated by the master? Do his words stir your affections? Are you in Christ? The answer to these questions cannot be more important, more worthy of our consideration. They need to be pursued and they can be pursued here and now. We can do that together. So let's commit to doing that together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you, God. Thank you for the work that you have done that if we looked throughout the course of of, of all of human history, if we look at the testimony of the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, through your word, uh, we would know that he is Lord. We would know the length that you have gone to reconcile us to you. We would know the, the grace that you have shown us that by faith in your son, Jesus, we might be saved. Thank you, Father, for the work that you have done. God, thank you for the work that you are doing even now, God, as we see a church rooted with people, Lord, as we are exposed to Christians all over the world that are displaying their rootedness in you and are bearing fruit all over the place, God. We thank you and we praise you and we ask, Lord, that you would continue to build us up. Lord, would you establish and strengthen us in the faith that you have given us and ultimately, God, would you allow us to praise and worship you now and forever. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for all things and we pray these things in your name. Amen.